Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to the latest edition of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I am your host, as always, Jason Evans. Thank you so much for joining me, and I am joined by one of my usual partners in crime, Sam Klein. How you doing, my friend? I'm good. It is 6 a.m. here in Denver. There's a light covering of snow on the ground that I can see out the window. Um, so uh, pretty pretty standard Colorado weather. And hey, did you know that Duke is up to number one in the uh, Ken Pomeroy rankings? Uh, yes, yes. We've been number one most of the season. We dropped out for a little bit, but just last night we uh, we put a little bit of a, I don't want to call it a beat down, but we, we definitely beat the Florida Gators fairly soundly. They were pretty highly regarded by Ken Pomeroy. And that has boosted us back to the top spot. Uh, uh, also joining us this week, I am sad to say that our usual uh, partner in crime, Donald Wine, is not around. He is on vacation or uh, for some reason he's in the Caribbean or Central America or something like that. I, I'm not sure. He may be trying to take over Cuba for all I know. But uh, we are joined by uh, Jordan Brenner. Who, uh, who writes for Bleacher Report. He used to be a college hoops writer uh, until very, very recently for a writer and editor, I should say, for ESPN, the magazine. This is a guy who's written numerous articles about Duke basketball and uh, I guess you'd say is kind of close to the program, certainly knows some folks connected to the program. Hey, Jordan, thanks a lot for waking up early and joining us this morning. I would never miss an opportunity to talk to the great Jason Evans for um, any length of time at any time of day. Oh, oh, you flatter me so. Thank you, sir. Uh, we should also point out that uh, uh, Jordan was at the Duke-Florida game just last night. So, uh, again, the Blue Devils beat the Florida Gators 84-74. to 74. Uh, It was a game uh, in which many people say it was the coming out party for Jason Tatum. Um, but uh, uh, even with Tatum scoring 22 points, he... He did not um, uh, overshadow Luke Kennard and Emil Jefferson, who who both turned in another incredible, you know, great game in in many many phases of the game. Jordan, I'll start with you. Give me your impressions from being there, from seeing what it was like uh, in the Garden as the Blue Devils took care of Florida. Yeah, it's somewhat remarkable on a team that I think we all thought the hallmark would be great balance and depth, um, especially as, as the year wore on. To watch just a it was sort of a three-man offensive show, reminiscent of the of the, two, the 2010 title team, almost right. You had three guys basically scoring all the points, uh, but you know, uh, Emil and and Kennard especially just continue to be so impressive um, with each game. And, and I do hope two fans are really appreciating what Emil Jefferson is doing. Um, the, when a guy like that just improves year in and year out, and is able to finish off with a senior or a fifth year like this it's just that you know that's kind of that kind of harkens back to the old days of college basketball and and really enjoying watching someone grow within a program and and i hope you all are are enjoying what you're seeing in him he's become a really good player Uh, yeah you know it's a mix this duke team is really showing itself to be um the, the the great mix of the different types of college basketball players that you can have i mean you know fourth and fifth year uh seniors in in jones and jefferson who who do all the fundamental things so so well, and 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 then you get you know guys who aren't yet seniors, but who are clearly um, uh, you know uh, really experienced players in in Allen and Kennard, and now we're mixing in some of the freshmen, um, especially Jason Tatum. Uh, uh, Sam, let me let me throw it over to you and ask who was the most impressive player on the floor last night for the Blue Devils. I I would go with Jefferson, but you could you could talk me into any of those three. Tatum obviously didn't have quite as good of a game as as Kennard or Jefferson did, but Tatum's also coming off however many weeks of injury now he's been gone for, um, you know, with his tune-up game against Maine. So I thought that he was really impressive, especially in the second half. But I would give it to Jefferson. I feel like on both ends of the court, he he's really asserted himself. Um, one of the things that I wanted to get into later, but I guess I'll mention now, um, we when we talked at the beginning of the season about um, who's going to lead the team in various statistical categories. Uh, Emil Jefferson got some, got a little bit of love, I think, from us for leading the team in blocks. He's got 22 already on the season, and um, his previous career high was 26. So um, he's, been, he's been much more forceful on the defensive end. You know, I think, I think in years past, we noted that he was good at guarding lots of different positions, but that there wasn't, like, one thing on defense he was really strong at. I think he's gotten much stronger on defending the post. Um, he really shut down Florida's bigs yesterday. You know, there were a few possessions where 
they, he'd be one-on-one -on -one against a guy and the guy would start to back him down, but then Emil would just kind of would make himself big and, and the, the Florida player wouldn't have anywhere to go with the ball and, and Emil would either block his shot or, or force him to kick it back out, um, you know, sort of out of rhythm. And so I think for that reason, Jefferson, because he can do it at both ends of the court, um, has really, was really the most impressive player last night. Um, uh, Jordan, let, let me let me throw this one over to you. Uh, so last night, Duke really only used six guys. Um, Chase Jeter got one minute. Uh, Mark Spolden got two minutes. Um, and uh, Coach K, well known for having a short bench, and and even when he has talented players over there, you know, being reluctant to play them. Uh, was this? Uh, do you think this was a harbinger of, of what's to come over the rest of the season, or or is it still a matter of he's trying to work guys in in different kinds of ways and places and figuring out combinations because he's still dealing with guys coming back from injury or or not yet come back from injury? Uh, it's sort of both. I have a fairly long-winded answer for you on that. When That's I, okay. So, Be long-winded. <laughs> talk for a while. <laughs> so the last piece I wrote ESPN before I left the Bleacher Report was um was actually I, I was a Duke story. I was down. Uh, down in Durham in October, took in a couple practices, and then wrote about um, the team for uh, the MAG season preview, and, and I really focused on the size and depth of the team. But part of what I mentioned in the story is obviously, you know, as you mentioned, you know, Coach K does tend to like to get down to seven, eight guys with most teams. There have been exceptions in the past. And obviously sort of has a preference for maybe playing small and switching screens and, and and you could see the possibility was there with this team for two reasons. One, obviously the bigs are young and, and haven't been healthy. And two, he had six really good perimeter guys. And anyone who thought Luke Kennard before the season was going to get lost in the shuffle somehow was, was out of their mind. And there's just he's always going to find a way for guys who can play. And all these perimeter guys can play. So, you know, I talked with people before the season about the idea that maybe – you know, maybe the patience with the bigs won't be as long and that maybe, you know, he he even, I was down there before Bolden was hurt, before Tatum was hurt, and obviously I think the thought was Giles would be back uh, sooner than he's been. Uh, but even then, Coach K was talking about even being able to slide a meal to the five and Tatum to the four and switch off screens. So it's not like we didn't see any of this coming. Um, look, Bolden, when he's healthier and, and the rust is gone, is going to play. You're not going to see two minutes, two fouls from him. That's not going to happen. Yeah, he, he was really impressive when I was down there in Durham. He's got good feet, good hands, really good touch around the hoop with both um, with both hands. And he is something, it, with all due respect to Emil Jefferson's newfound shot blocking prowess, he is a legit rim protector. So it's just going to take time with him. Um, Jeter is the big question mark for me because he had a, he had a really good summer and, and, and fall. Um, was playing really well in how practice. How do they find time for him, though? There's just well, that's the I, question. I, yeah, yeah. I don't know how. Uh, other than blowouts, and and, and I think they're going to be some blowouts. Uh, but continue. Sorry, I just don't know how they find time for Jeter this season. Well, the, the the bigger thing is is not how do you find time for him if you have a healthy Bolden and Giles. The, the concerning thing is how are you not able to find time for him now, right? If he if he were playing as well as I saw him this fall, and as well as they thought. He was playing in practice and he was really going toe to toe with Bolden every day. He he wouldn't be getting one minute in a game like this. I think pretty clearly he hasn't played as well in games so far this year, and he looks like a a kid who maybe the confidence sort of wavers when when things start to not go so well. But yeah, I would be concerned that there's not the trust right now to have him on the court in in these situations, and I think probably that injury set him back a little bit. So I I wouldn't be worried about Bolden being in the rotation. What I'd be worried about is how and if Giles can adjust to playing again after being out a year and whether Jeter can do anything to um, sort of turn this thing around. Otherwise, I think you'll be seeing probably more of that Jefferson at the five, Tatum at the four lineup than maybe you counted on before the season, which isn't necessarily a terrible thing because it does give you some defensive flexibility. And I think you saw how nasty Tatum can be in the pinch post elbow type of stuff. Oh God, yeah. I, I mean, one of the to me, one of the big takeaways from this game was uh, Tatum's ability to play the four um, against a Florida team that that had some beef, has some length on the inside, um, and was certainly willing to to go up there and attack the glass. And and Tatum, I thought, had a really nice 
game, uh, you know, playing the four and and keeping them off the glass. He had eight rebounds in 29 minutes, every single one of them defensive rebounds. Um, uh, and he's not really in position to get offensive rebounds. But uh, I thought he did a really nice job uh, playing the four. And I can see why Kay would fall in love with that. Um, uh, you know, and and when you have him and Jefferson on the floor together with the other wing players, you know, everyone talked about the fact that Duke doesn't have a point guard and, and we don't have a real point guard, but we we're basically immune to pressure because we've got so many other guys who can handle the ball. And when Jefferson and Tatum are in the game, you can't press this Duke team. You can't put pressure on them because we've got five guys who can all handle the ball really nicely. Um, I, you know, Jordan, I'm surprised about what you said about Jeter because I thought he had a really nice game against Michigan State. He played 20 plus minutes against, a, you know, again, a pretty good Michigan State front line, um, held his own. Uh, so you feel like it's a confidence thing with him? I feel like I just haven't seen, I haven't seen, I'm yet to see it click for him. He has flashes, he has moments. Um, but I, I, I can see why Coach K didn't play him a lot in what he thought would be a really competitive game. Yeah, I just think it's, look, again, it's one thing watching guys in practice, but the Chase Jeter I saw kind of carries himself with, uh, with strength and with, you know, again, confidence in those field practices I saw was, has not been what I've seen on the court this year. Even in games where he's played decently well, like the Michigan State game, you know, I saw a guy um, this fall who could be a really good dive guy on the pick and roll, who was catching the ball high and, and dunking in traffic and who was, you know, a presence on the defensive boards and, and, and could be a shot blocker. I just don't – I haven't quite seen that same comfort on the floor from him. But uh, to get back to the other point you just made really quick, I always thought the – Lack of a true point guard was always a, a a red herring for this team. Like you said, there's a lot of guys who who can handle the ball. Tatum has some point forward skills, and I always thought Luke Kennard um, was just really good with the ball in his hands. I was telling people last year that even back to last year that I think it would have been they ran so much ball screen stuff with with Grayson Allen, but I kind of would have liked to have seen them do more with Kennard and you know, put Grayson Allen on the weak side where he could then attack a closeout because um, Kennard is so so clever with the ball. So I've always I've always found that to be sort of one of the, the less um, valid potential criticisms of this team. And I think you saw the way the ball was, was moving and humming in the second half. You know, there were some sequences last night where it was just beautiful basketball where guys were just catching, making a quick decision, moving the ball, and, you know, you end up with dunks and layups. Uh, you don't need a, a point guard, and you got five guys who can play ball and dribble and pass to do that, and, and, and they've got that, especially when they go small. Well, you end I, up with dunks, layups, yeah. and – sorry, really quick. You end yeah. up with dunks, layups, and open three-pointers for Luke Kennard. You know, we haven't mentioned Grayson Allen yet, and Grayson Allen had, to me, as about, about as good of a uh, only score six points when you're a big scorer game <laughs> as, you, as he possibly could have. Uh, he had eight assists and – um, he probably assisted on at least four of Luke Kennard's five three pointers. Uh, yeah, Sam, go ahead. What were you What were you going to add? Oh, I was going to I was going to go back to Jason Tatum for a second because you because we had talked about how how well he's been or how he might be the the best guy to be playing the four on this team. And I think that in years past, um, you know, Jordan's whole piece was about was about Duke's depth, especially in the front court. In years past, um, we we'd get a recruit like Tatum and be like, oh, he's the, he's a great Duke four. You know, he's going to be like Jabari Parker or Grant Hill, uh, you know, similar size, I think can, can play all over the court like that. And on this team, we came into the season thinking, oh, well, Tatum's going to have to play the three because there's too many guys in the post. So it's almost like we're reverting back to what we think of Duke basketball working as, which is really like one true post player and the rest of the guys around him. And Tatum just happening to be the biggest guy who can go inside and get rebounds. Um, so he is really a Duke four, you know, more so than he's a three, even though we wanted to pigeonhole him into this role. I, I And I guess I wanted to to follow up with you about Grayson Allen and, and just agree that, um, you know, he has struggled shooting the ball, but otherwise um, seems like he's, he's adjusting well. It's, you don't see him, you don't see him upset about, at least on the court, about the fact that um, Kennard has really taken over his role as the lead guard on this team and has scored most of the points. Um, so credit to Grayson Allen. I do wonder if he, if maybe he regrets not leaving for the draft this year, um, just because he's he's being overshadowed by other players and isn't having maybe you know the the best version of himself out there. Um, but 
but to his credit has been a real team player about it and appears to be, you know, rolling along right, right, right with these guys as they're, as they're beating good teams. Well, to be fair, the guy is is clearly hurt too. I mean, you know, I don't know how many times coach has to mention this toe injury before people recognize and and just watch him for five minutes. He's not himself. He, you know, he's a terrific shooter as Jay Billis likes, my friend Jay Billis likes to point out um, in podcast, but the guy, you know, sort of made his mark going to the basket. Um, And that is, that explosiveness, that 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 final step to elevate and get to the rim and 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 you know score in traffic, that's not there right now. Uh, I, I, just again, it's it's not hard to see. Uh, so I think he's doing what he can with what he has right now. But you know, if 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 this toe injury is really a problem and it's the type of thing that would respond to rest, I would consider I consider shutting him down for a couple of weeks now that you've got Tatum, got Bolden back, and 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 you know, getting him well for ACC season because I think you'd rather have a peak Grayson Allen for the games that count than, uh, you know, one who's dealing with this lingering toe injury uh, all year. But, again, I am, I am very far from a doctor, so I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it is the type of thing that's going to respond to a couple weeks rest. But you know, I'd be curious to know if that's, if that's the case. And he doesn't strike me as the sort of player that that is going to uh, respond kindly to being told to rest unless he's absolutely told he has to, right? Yeah, but I don't think there's a problem in the Duke program with Coach K telling you what to do. So. Oh no, if, no, no. Just that, <laughs> just that, just that Grayson Allen would rather be, if nothing else, he'd rather just be driving aggressively to the rim um, than than doing just about anything uh, anything else on the court or or for the program. So sure. uh, no, I'm not I'm not I'm not worried about him being a a rogue player. Just that just that his uh, his basketball preferences don't line up with sitting on the bench. Yeah, I, I, yeah that's fairly <laughs> common in, in most players. Hey, Jordan, really quick, do you, do you feel like Grayson Allen has so far this season hurt his NBA stock, or, or, or you know, is there a real understanding of uh, of the circumstances he's been under uh, from an injury standpoint? I haven't spoken to any um, scouts or GMs since the preseason when I was writing the, the preseason piece because it's just so early to be. You know, I'm not really checking up on anyone's stock. I would think that if this Injury is sort of as significant as, as they're saying. Most uh, most pro people would understand that and just w- would want to see him then when he's healthy again and just to sort of you know cross check and and confirm that this is just sort of injury related. Um, it's but it's it's too, here's the thing in general, the idea of draft stocks fluctuating so rapidly based on a couple of games it doesn't happen. You know NBA people are smarter than that. They go off very large samples of information. So nobody you know. Even, even honestly, even if he weren't hurt and he were just playing like this, no one would be like, oh, well, that dropped him from 20 to 40 on my board. Like, that's just not the way the league works. They, they're actually far better at making decisions than most people give them credit for. And, you know, they're not making rash, impulsive choices based on a small sample set of games. Wait, are, are you implying that they actually pay attention as much as we do? I, I'm I'm shocked. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) i know it's amazing right yeah right uh so uh i just want to add a couple other really quick things about florida uh, and then unless you guys have something else to say we we can move we can move back in time to some of the other games that we uh i just want to briefly briefly touch on especially in that michigan state game but um uh, espn had a great stat last night that i want to remind everybody of they point out that luke Kennard, emil jefferson and jason tatum combined for 75 points and that all three of them scored more than um 22 points the last time, the last time three Duke players scored 22 points in a game, January 20th of 2001, when Jason Williams, Carlos Boozer, and Shane Battier all did it, um, which is pretty cool. And then I also noticed something pretty interesting. Um, uh, you know, ESPN has these little uh, uh, player shot graphs, you know, little graphs of where everyone took their shots, you know, what they made, what they missed, and where it came from. Um, last night's game, they had Emil Jefferson taking one shot one of his 14 shots was taken outside of the paint and he missed it. Uh, I thought uh, Jefferson was amazing at the angles that he chose and, and his ability to get off his shot, even when playing against bigger guys. Um, it, it, uh, he, God, it's just, it is amazing to see what he's turned into. But I just, I love the fact that he took one shot outside the lane and that's one of the ones, one of the three shots that he missed the entire game. <laughs> uh, did you guys have anything else on Florida you want to bring in Sam, anything? else here or should we move on to move back to michigan state nope i think we covered it i'll right, say good. one thing that yeah. you guys that you guys as duke fans i think the one thing you might want to be concerned about going forward a little bit 
is overall team defense. And I think it, it, it might be a byproduct of going small. Um, we've sort of seen the importance of rim protection in general. And I think the, maybe the one area where it, I sort of dismiss the importance of a true point guard on offense, but there isn't necessarily that one guy, you know, Matt Jones being asked to do it a lot, that one guy built to guard small point guards. Um, and I could see that being a problem going forward. So just something to sort of keep an eye on. Uh, I, on I, I've team. noted that. I've noted that, you know, because in these games against like Florida, Duke wins by 10 points. Michigan State, Duke wins by, I mean, it was about 10 points. Um, so they, they're not pulling away from uh, these teams, you know, like uh, other elite teams, if they're playing teams that are like bottom top 25 level, uh, you might expect them to to win by larger margins of victory or to, to put the game away earlier. And Duke doesn't really, Duke hasn't really done that. Um, and I, I think that that's because of the defense, right? It's, it, they're scoring plenty, um, and it, it shows up in the in the Ken Palm rankings as well. But that right that that they don't lock down individual guys um, maybe as well as they could. I think that that might improve when you get guys healthier and maybe they have a little bit more energy to play on the defensive end. Um, just because for now it hasn't really bitten them yet. Right, and you know, maybe we can return to this a little bit later. But it's uh, that overall team defense. I think would be a, would be maybe my biggest concern about this team going forward. Although, you know, I, and uh, I know I, I, we sound like we we're going to move on, but, but uh, Jordan, you brought up something that I, I do want to talk about. Um, I, I thought there were times last night against Florida where Duke's team defense looked awesome. It looked really good, um, especially like the, the start of the second half when, when Duke's really stretched out the lead a little bit. And, and um, uh, you know, that was to me where you got the sense that Florida really doesn't have a chance. You know, it, Florida just doesn't have a chance in this game. Florida, it felt to me like they scored most of their points off of kind of hero shots, you know, guys going one-on-one and, um, uh, you know, they got hot. Uh, Allen got hot from the outside, not Grayson Allen, the, the Allen on Florida. Um, uh, but but I thought Duke at times played really good uh, team defense, uh, again, especially early in that second half. Did you, did you not see that? You know, in spurts maybe, but I'm talking about consistent high-level defense um, we're, we're making possessions a grind, and, and I think teams are getting to the rim pretty easily still. Uh, if you just sort of look at where the ball goes and, and what sort of resistance is there, I, I just don't think the um, – yeah, it's just not – it's not like a high-level outfit yet. Um, uh, it's and, and, and quite frankly, it hasn't been for several years. You know, Duke – Duke's staple had for so long was pressure defense and creating offense, but this team has been for the last, you know, five, six years, it's been about incredibly high level offense and defense that times can get by and at times killed the season, um, with the sort of exception of the last month or two of the championship season in 2015. So, um, I don't know. I, you know, a few possessions here and there against Florida, notwithstanding, I, I think there are, there are still issues that may or may not just be, fixed by, you know, healthy, bold, and healthy Giles in the lineup uh, and, you know, freshmen, you know, becoming comfortable in the system. But, uh, again, it's, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I mean, it probably – a lot of it's probably a function of how long these guys are in the Duke program. It takes time to become a good team defensive unit, and uh, you don't get a lot of time with guys who are, you know, one and done uh, the way so many guys are at, at Duke in recent years. So let's officially move back in time. Um, I also want to talk about the Michigan State game about a week ago or so. Duke won 78-69. to 69. Like Sam said, it was about a 10-point victory. Um, and uh, Sam, I'll start with you on this one. Uh, Grayson Allen had 24. Luke Kennard had 20. Emil Jefferson had 17 and 13. And yet everyone says the star of the game, and I kind of agree, was Mr. Jones. Uh, yeah, talk I... to me about your impressions. My, that was that was going to be my my one point that I wanted everybody to remember was how much Matt Jones frustrated Miles Bridges, the uh, the star freshman for Michigan State. Even though Bridges is a few inches taller than Jones, um, Jones was on him most of the game, and and as as Jordan pointed out, he's probably the best perimeter defender on this team. And Bridges, you know, you could see those flashes of athleticism. He had the one putback dunk um, that was that was just ferocious. Um, but otherwise didn't seem really to get into a rhythm against Duke. 
and and that's mostly credited to Jones. And and he's going to be he's going to have games like this where he's not going to score any points or he's going to score two points. Um, but he's going to be really important in making sure the ball gets to the right guys because he because he gets you know a fair number of assists for a guy that never shoots or who who, who doesn't shoot very well. And and then on the other side of the ball, he he plays defense really well um, and and is able you know when when the matchup works um, to, to really get after individual players like Bridges. And that was, that was the key to Duke winning this game, uh, especially because early in the game, it was, it was pretty back and forth. Duke didn't pull away until, uh, until, you know, partway through the second half, they weren't shooting the ball that well. So keeping Michigan state down was just as important um, as, as trying to get the shots up on the offensive side. Uh, Coach K after the game um, said of Matt Jones, he had a spectacular two point performance. And I read a great stat. I mean, this is, you guys know me. I, I love my statistics. This is a great stat. In the first 12 minutes of that game, with Matt Jones shadowing Bridges everywhere he went, Bridges touched the ball on offense twice. We're talking about a 17 and a half point per game scorer, the, the best player on Michigan State, their star. Who's, who's in the first, yeah. In the first 12 minutes of the game, he touched the ball twice. And one of the times he touched it, was because he got a steal on the defensive end and he was able to take the ball up the length of the floor. Um, and and you could see he was visibly frustrated uh, that his teammates were unable to get him the ball, but they were unable to get him the ball because Matt Jones seemed to know where Bridges was going before Bridges even got there. It really was very, very impressive. Jordan, what were your impressions of that Michigan State game? Uh, you know, similar to what you guys were saying, it was not, it still wasn't a, a vintage effort by any means, but again, it was sort of like the last, of the games they had to grind out without any help from, from these talented freshmen and, and sure got used to seeing them play that way. I think I think you're right. Um the unheralded things Matt Jones does really kinda kinda stood out in this game. I think you guys mentioned earlier that Chase Jeter actually gave him twenty one minutes and, and and some sort of a presence in that game. Um you know I think I think you know, you'd have concerns about a Duke team that maybe <laughs> that, that was the six-man Duke team going forward. But I think, you know, with all of those early games, it was like, okay, what's the – how how can they, you know, eke out a win this way because this is not ultimately what it's going to look like going forward. And, and, you know, I think that team figured out how to beat teams with what they had. And, and um, I'm sure no one wants to <laughs> go back to that lineup either now that they've, you know, got some of their talented guys back. Oh yeah, well it, it 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 is it's fun, <laughs> it's fun to watch Jason Tatum, but but yeah, I, I really, I, I think we should reflect on the uh, the incredible effort it took to to get to seven and one. Um, we're now nine and one, but seven and one is where we stood when we really only had six guys. Um, and and uh, I mean in that Michigan State game, Jones and Kennard both played forty minutes. Uh, hopefully, we won't have to. We won't have to resort to that <laughs> ever again this season. Um, uh, and, it, I, you know, I think that affects some of the defense. The fact that these guys are playing huge, huge, heavy minutes and have to carry the load by themselves has, has affected their ability to, to exert effort at both ends of the floor because um, uh, if, they get, if they get tired, they get exhausted, there's no one on the bench to come in for them, really. So the, Michigan State is the kind of team that is usually really, really physical with you. Um, usually just pounds you to death on the boards. Michigan State only got eight offensive rebounds against Duke. And um, I, I, I just continue to be incredibly impressed uh, with the effort that these guys put forth, considering that there weren't a lot of reinforcements there to help them out. Um, uh, and, and I, you know, Emil Jefferson, you just can't say enough about Emil Jefferson. He had five offensive rebounds against Michigan State. Um, and uh, I... I just thought, you know, there were plenty of times where he was the best player on the floor. He was the impact player on the floor. And uh, I, it's not something that I ever expected that we would see out of Emil Jefferson. Um, yeah, uh, to your point about about uh, defense and fatigue, uh, the other big thing is when you only are playing six guys, you, players know they can't afford to foul. I talked to Matt Jones about that, actually, uh, before the season. And last year, obviously last year's team was not very good defensively. He sort of admitted that you don't want to think that way, but when, you know, you, you may not, you know, be quite as aggressive or um, risky 
uh, or physical, especially early in a game, knowing that there's no one else to go to if you get in foul trouble or if you get tired. That even though you tell yourself not to, it's sort of human nature to hold back a little bit because they are aware of circumstances of the team. So I do think you're right that in general having more guys and at least the knowledge that there's somebody behind you should enable guys to sort of go more all out on defense and ultimately should allow Coach K to basically say, you're not playing defense at the level I'm expecting. You're coming out of the game. He hasn't had that option the past couple of years. Uh, so I, I, I want to quickly, there was a game in between Michigan State and Florida. Uh, we played the Maine Black Bears, um, a really interesting game because it was the first time we got to see uh, Jason Tatum and Marcus Bolden in um, uh, in Duke uniforms playing in a regular season game. They, of course, suited up in the blue-white game earlier this year. Um, uh, I, so it was also, I think, the 130th consecutive win for Duke at Cameron against non-conference opponents, uh, which is just insane. We haven't lost a non-conference game at home since the year 2000. Um, there, are, uh, there are kids who, um, not this coming year, but, but like in, a, in another year, who will be applying and, and going to Duke University, who the last time Duke lost, they weren't even born yet. <laughs> it's just... It's just insane how good we are at Cameron. Um, uh, Sam, did you have? Uh, was there any takeaways you had from the main game? What What was it like to finally see Tatum and Bolden? Pretty Pretty nice to finally have uh, some some help, huh? I mean, it, it was great to see Tatum and Bolden. I was excited to see Jack White for ten minutes. No, I I, I Maine was a overmatched <laughs> opponent, and it was good that um, it was good that that Coach K had that game to get Tatum. Tatum got a, got a lot of minutes. He played twenty minutes in that game. Um, Bolden a little less, and and, it's, and it does seem from the minutes that they played uh, um, against Florida that Bolden might be a little farther away from from being you know ready uh, to contribute. But it was good to see them both out on the court, um, showing a little bit of what they could do. Um, Bolden actually had a nice game in in, in limited minutes, um, but but yeah, I, th- I think that was the 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 big takeaway from the main game was just that we got to see those guys play a little bit, um, and and that that felt good and and. You know, we have this. We had the Florida game, and then now we're going to enter a stretch of games where there aren't as many. You know, the teams aren't quite as good until we get to ACC play. So uh, hopefully, it means there's more opportunities for for them to try out different lineups and, and to get Bolden and Tatum and hopefully Giles now um, integrated back into the rotation, so we can see a semblance of of what this team is supposed to look like ahead of starting conference play. Well, speaking of different lineups, uh, some people have noted that for four minutes, for four full minutes against Maine, Duke sent the following lineup onto the floor. Are you guys ready for this one? Emil Jefferson, Emil Jefferson, Chase Jeter, Javin Delorier, Jack White, and Antonio Vrankovic. There isn't a guard in the unless you think maybe maybe Jack White's a guard. I think he's really more of a small forward. He had, Coach K essentially sent out uh, like two or three forwards and two centers for for four minutes, and and they actually outscored Maine. Um, and I think Jefferson yeah, kind of ran. How tall, how tall was the tallest Maine player? Yeah, <laughs> probably probably maybe Jack White's size. Yeah, um, I think Jefferson played the point guard during that for that lineup. I I, I love it. I love it. it. Was uh yeah, it was a good game to to get things um. Uh, to get some guys integrated and and uh, to rest up some, um, we haven't even mentioned Luke Kennard had 35 points in that game. Oh, kid's um, ridiculous! Kid's he, ridiculous. He's pretty good at basketball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I love? I, the 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 left the ambidextrousness, the fact that he can shoot with his left or his right. And I think lefty shooters like him, when he gets around the basket and he puts out that really quick left-handed shot, I think you're so used to playing against right-handed guys, it's like you don't see it coming. Um, and so he's able to get it off a little bit easier because it's not like he's elevating above anybody when he when he takes that shot in the lane. He's just sort of, I'll put a little head fake on you and uh, I'll spin around a little bit and and then I'll put the ball up with my left hand. And and he makes that thing remarkably often. Really, really, uh, uh, it's, it's tremendously impressive. Uh, anything else on Maine or, or or should we move on to other stuff? Let's look ahead. 
Let's look ahead. Sam, we have UNLV coming up this weekend. Um, this is not Jerry Tarkanian's UNLV, is it? Uh, no, it's uh, it's Mar- I'm, Jordan. Am I saying this right? Is it Marvin Menzies? Is that his name? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, uh, it's Marvin Menzies' uh, UNLV team, and no, they're not a whole lot like Jerry Tarkanian's UNLV. The UNLV program has had a little bit of turbulence the last year. They fired Dave Rice um, a little less than a year ago, installed an interim coach, then they hired um, Chris Beard, who was the head coach of that Arkansas Little Rock team that that was so exciting in the tournament um, uh, back in March. And then less than a month after they hired Chris Beard, he um, he left to go take another job. So uh, they had to hire Marvin Menzies. So now they're on their fourth coach in under a year, or fourth coach in, it, it took all of about five months to have all these guys in there. And um, under Dave Rice, UNLV's success was mostly due uh, to having really high level NBA prospects who came in and would only play one or two years for them. Going back, they had Anthony Bennett a few years ago. Um, they had Christian Wood and, and Rashad Vaughn uh, in the 2015 team. And Wood was also on the team in 14. And then last year they had Steven Zimmerman, who's now in the league. Uh, UNLV doesn't have any of those top level recruits anymore. There are no, no RSCI top 100 guys on this, on this team. Um, and it shows because they are five and three. They've lost games to Alabama and TCU and uh, Bobby Hurley's Arizona State squad. And their only wins are against uh, directional schools and schools in the California public school system. So uh, no wins that are not Berkeley or UCLA. Um, so no wins over, uh, over major, uh, major teams yet. They're 185th in Ken Palm. Um, and they, they run a lot of guys. They have kind of a deep bench. Um, but it doesn't seem to be paying off for them. So their best player is Jalen Poyser. He's a 6'4 point guard uh, sophomore. He's averaging over 17 points a game um, and and close to four assists a game. So he's talented enough to be the best player on this team. And then um, they've got a they've got a good big man in Dwayne Morgan, um, who's six eight, and and he scores 10 points a game and gets almost eight rebounds a game. I don't expect Duke to have a ton of um, issues with this UNLV team. The game is in Las Vegas at the new, uh, I believe, is it the Oracle Arena? Uh, at the at the new um, uh, new arena no, in Las T- Vegas. It's T-Mobile. T-Mobile, uh, T-Mobile. right? Yeah, um, T-Mobile Arena. At, yeah, it's the arena that they're going to use for the for the hockey team. Um, so they're they're playing this game there, and then I think they're also playing um, Kentucky UNC is going to be there the following weekend. So they're trying to get um, major events in there, but that's not it's not UNLV's normal home court. They, excuse me, they play in the Mac Center. Um, on campus, which isn't that far away, but is you know is a smaller, um, more intimate venue. This is a this is a big you know NBA NHL sized arena that they're going to be playing in. Um, certainly, an atmosphere that Duke is used to playing in, um, having played a few games so far this year at Madison Square Garden and in years past, um, wow. you know, in, in like the United Center and places like that. So uh, I don't expect Duke to be overwhelmed by that. Although um, I don't know how long it's been since Duke had to play games um, out in uh, out in the Western time zone. So there is going to be a little bit of adjustment perhaps for this team because uh, normally, you know, they, they stay home and, and, and uh, you know, when they, when they play on the road, they're playing in New York or they're playing in other ACC schools. Um, and I, I would just note for, as a personal thing, uh, I really wanted to go to this game because it's one of the most convenient Duke games that I'll probably ever get to see. Uh, but couldn't make it happen this weekend, unfortunately. Um, have you, either of you guys watched any of UNLV this year and, and have any comments about them? I have not, only, but <laughs> I did watch Arizona State last night. And they look They're not terrible, very good. And, and Arizona State <laughs> beat, beat UNLV by 24 points. So, right. um, but, and and yeah, most recently. That. So, yes. yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't seen UNLV play at all. I, Sometimes if there's an opponent coming up who, who I think really can challenge Duke, I'll, I'll try to make an effort to see a game. And um, I think UNLV is not a team that can challenge Duke at this point. Um, uh, I would expect, uh, you know, look, if, if Arizona State beat them by 24, you would expect Duke to, to spank them pretty hard because um, Arizona State's not that good a club. Uh, and UNLV has absolutely no impressive results. And they're, you know, in the 180s in Pomeroy because they're not good. Uh, so I didn't bother uh, UNLV. Uh, you know the name sounds great, but I don't think they're much more than a name at this point. Well, and and it is a little bit of a weird scheduling spot for Duke because 
they were in New York, obviously, this week. They're going to presumably come home to Durham for a couple of days, then fly out to Las Vegas, and then the week after is, is final exams. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit of a weird spot um, on the schedule. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't expect them to have a ton of trouble even, even having to go on the road. So that's, I think that's all I had on UNLV. So uh, earlier we mentioned uh, that Jordan Brenner um, uh, was with ESPN, the magazine, for a, for a while and uh, is now with Bleacher Report. And he's someone who's written numerous articles about Duke basketball. I want to take a couple minutes on the podcast now to really dig into Jordan's mind. Um, Jordan, you know, you've been a fan of college hoops, but also a member of the media who, who got to get close to some programs, especially to the Duke program. Um, what kind of stuff did you see and learn that would surprise the fans? Uh, just covering the games, or yeah, yeah, or or uh, you know anything that we we might not expect um, as fans that that you that you happen to come across things that you're allowed to say. <laughs> I mean, gosh, it's it's you know it's I've been doing this a while now, so that the stuff that probably surprised me. 10 years ago, I just don't even pay attention to anymore. But I think if you're not around a college program closely, you sort of don't realize how professionally um, it runs and how just, you know, there's there's oftentimes a lot, you know, in terms of the way, uh, you know, the the time put into this stuff and the, and the, the scouting that goes on for the assistant coaches and the, the, the amount of time the players are spending um, related to the sport, you know, whether they're getting, you know, we, we, our restrictions in our practice notwithstanding, you know, the amount of time they're spending getting uh, getting treatment for injuries and in the weight room and putting in their own time shooting and stuff, it's it just, it really is a full-time job. It's sort of, it's remarkable that, you know, they're almost expected to be college students with the the demand of this. You know, the most the most time I ever spent with a program was actually with Michigan. Um, spent I uh, did a story on them playing uh, two huge games in four days uh, a couple of years ago. The, actually, the year they ended up making it to the national title game against Louisville, and I was everywhere with them. You know, team meals, team plane, team hotel in Indiana, um, and it's just this this close group and and of every you know and, and the ops guys and those the training staff and it's just this sort of like traveling party of, you know, 20 to 30 when you include, you know, managers and stuff. And they're just so all locked in and each knowing their kind of their, their role. Uh, it just, it just functions, you know, like a, like a machine. And it's really, it really is an incredibly time consuming uh, labor intensive enterprise. Does it make you jaded? Does it make you, um, does it bother you that these kids are not getting paid? That this is supposedly about student athletes, and it sounds to me like you're describing pros. So I, I go back and forth on this, and I go to different extremes. Um, I actually, honestly, and I've been toying with writing something about this for a while, and I'm still sort of figuring out the right way to do it and and, and source it. There's a part of me that feels like none of this belongs in the university system. That we sort of have this really strange culture that's unlike anywhere else in the world that for some reason decides to combine academics and athletics when the two things really have nothing to do with one another. And if you um, look at some studies that have been done over the years, um, athletes tend to, especially at selective schools like a Duke or, or you know, um, host of other top schools in the country, athletes tend to get greater admission breaks than any other uh, subset. They perform worse at school than any other group. They tend to um, be less involved in the university after they leave and less involved with the rest of the university while they're there. And they, um, there are also studies done that show there's really no correlation between um, a team's success and alumni giving. So when you start really? to take those things out, yeah, and when you start to take those things out, start to wonder why we're doing this at all and why the highest paid employee, state employee in virtually every state is a college football 
or basketball coach? And what message are we sending to people, to young people, about what matters in our society? So that's that's like half my brain is there. The other half is this is a free market. This is we have chosen as a society to prioritize these things, and we are spending tons of money to watch these games, and and let's and so yeah, let you know these guys are coming in and whether you want to call them student athletes first or entertainers, um, they're providing a service and that service extends beyond the cost of tuition and and should be compensated in some way. Of course, then you run into, I mean, we could go on this forever, right? You run into Title IX problems. Like I literally heard no one explain to me how it could be done with Title IX that you would pay revenue generating sports and not everyone else. And it's it's just a, it's a really slippery slope um, you know, I don't think the NCAA, I, I'm not no fan of the NCAA, but I just don't know what else to do short of, you know, in basketball, really developing the D league to a legit minor league system. So then guys have the choice between, you know, getting paid or pursuing an education, but getting paid real money. Uh, it's, it's, it's such a tough issue. So that's, that's a really long answer as to why I haven't written this yet, because, you know, for all the reporting I can do, for all the people I've talked to, and, and the studies I just cited, ultimately I, I don't I don't know either way is the right answer. So, uh, you know, I'm curious what you guys think on the subject. I, I mean, I'll tell you where I am, which is, if I was designing it from scratch, I would say that there should be a a minor league system the way we have in baseball for for both football and basketball, and that that minor league system would be as successful, as interesting with fans as invested in it and make as much money as college football and college basketball do. But that's me waving a magic wand, and that's not reality. Jason Tatum, one of the reasons Jason Tatum came to Duke uh, was to hone his basketball skills, but it was also to be part of the Duke brand and to begin to develop the Jason Tatum brand. Um, and, uh, you know, and part of getting ready for the NBA is playing in a professional program like Duke. And there are plenty of other programs. I'm not saying Duke's the only one. I, I don't think that playing in the D League prepares you in quite the same way. Um, uh, and, and I kind of like the fact that there are some limits on these guys, that they aren't immediately expected to be a full-time professional basketball player. Um, I know that you know, I know there aren't a lot of limits, and I know Jordan, like you pointed out, um, uh, there are limits on practice. But but they spend a heck of a lot of time in the training room. They they're they're expected to spend time outside of practice, working on their game and doing other things like that. Um, but at least there's you know at least there's a little bit of a limit on them. Um, and and I just I don't know that there's any other system that makes sense. And the money the money's huge. There's billions and billions of tens of billions of dollars. In college football and college basketball, that's not going to go away. Uh, oh, that's and, right. and I had a I had a colleague the other day too. Sorry to cut you off, but just you reminded yeah. me of something. I was having a discussion at work with with a colleague who he was actually making the point and let's that and look, let's put away any any. Let's not feign surprise here, guys. And let's talk college football, right? So it's not 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 hitting anything here. Guys are getting paid all over the place. Okay, let's yeah. let's let's yeah. be real about this. All right. And he was his point was. He kind of likes that system because it, then it's 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 going around some of the tricky issues I said we had to navigate, and there is sort of a market value based system that if such and such a program is thinks you're worth worth this, then you're getting this amount of money, and if such and such a program thinks you're worth that, and you're getting worth that amount of money, and the guys who really have a future playing this professionally are, are earning their worth, and the other guys can still get their college degree. Now I was largely disagreeing with him. But it was an, it was an interesting defense of sort of the underground market. We'll put it that way. And again, like anyone who thinks that that like, I don't want to say every program, but if anyone who thinks that like top players at a lot of places in top sports aren't getting paid, you're you're just oblivious. Like, and, and it's just unfortunately, it's it's just an impossible thing to prove. Which is why you know I could feel the follow up question: Why isn't this reported on more often? It's 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 so hard to prove, and then I would I would also say that the people in best position to, to report on this are local media. But if you're at the you know uh, let's make up a fake school. If you're at uh, you know West Kansas State Tech, 
you know, are you going to, and you have to, and you, you know, you're, you're in that community. Are, are you going to burn all access to the program and piss off everyone who lives there? It basically takes a lot of journalistic integrity to go do that. And a lot of places don't necessarily have that right now. Uh, let's a little shout out to Dan Kane right now of the Raleigh News and Observer for what he's done at Carolina. And he's he's had death threats as a result of his That's investigation. That's a great point. Yeah. And, and by the way, it's worth noting, Dan Kane was not the Carolina beat reporter. He was not a sports reporter. He's an investigative reporter. Um, I agree with you. I think you're you're 100 percent right about all this stuff, by the way, a really quick story. And then I'll let Sam jump in on this point and, and Jordan, and maybe then we'll ask you some other questions. This is a great side topic. I didn't anticipate this and it's been really fun. But uh, when I was at Duke um, in the uh, mid to late 1980s, I was lots of the guys in the basketball team. I'm not going to say who told me this story because I don't want um, I don't want him to potentially get in trouble. Uh, but a prominent, prominent member of the Duke basketball team, a guy who had been in McDonald's All-American, was a very close friend of mine, told me that when he was being recruited, a certain other very big school, um, Syracuse, I'll go ahead and say Syracuse, what the heck, uh, Syracuse offered him $10,000 to come play there. Uh, now, this was in the mid-80s. Um, the amount of money in college basketball was probably a fraction, um, uh, you know, maybe a tenth of what the money is now. Um, inflation, everything else. If he was offered $10,000 by Syracuse, he, he, he ended up coming to Duke. He said the money didn't matter to him. He wanted a different experience than what he would have gotten at Syracuse. Um, and he was very happy and very successful at Duke. Um, but if he was offered $10,000 in 1987, um, I can't imagine what these guys are being offered today uh, to, to play big-time college basketball, big-time college football. And I'm not saying that Duke does the offering. They might. I don't know. I don't have personal knowledge of it. But, Jordan, I bet that story doesn't surprise you one bit. Well, especially because you've told it to me before. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> right. But, you, know who the players, you know who the player I'm talking about. So I do. I and mean, you pretty much narrowed it down for anyone who wants to do a little investigating, <laughs> too. But, <laughs> you know, really, really, Jason, you know, I'm not going to tell you anything. But, you know, um, he was there when I was there. And, uh, oh, he was recruited by this school, too. And uh, we had classes together on Tuesday and Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, his name rhymes there. Uh, no, don't, anyway, don't, 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 don't. I, yeah, I'm not going there. But uh, look, I, I will say this: like, not everyone pays. Not everyone has to there because there's a certain threshold of a program where you're so successful that there are other reasons why a kid would want to come play for you other than to get paid money. And not every recruit is looking to get money. It's not you know, it's not a 100% thing. And so, are there places, elite programs, and I'm and I'm and I'm purposely leaving out names here because I don't want anyone to think I'm talking about anyone in particular. But are there places that can do it without going that route? Yeah. But are there places that do go that route? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, it's sort of up to some ways your own personal moral code in terms of what you think is right and what you think is wrong and how much you think sort of the way the NCAA runs things justifies going around it and, you know, how much you think like, you know, uh, mo I think most people believe, for instance, that players should be able to use their likeness. I don't think that's a particularly controversial topic among fans, among media, that, that no, you should no, be able to make right. money off your name. So, the question is, like, if you think that's, like, just patently unfair, they can't do that, then does it bother you less if a booster is, you know, lending him a car for free or is, you know, finding a way to, you know, funnel money to the family or something like that because they're getting screwed on one end, so who are they hurting on the other? I, you know, I, I really don't want to pass judgment on that front and sort of would ask, you know, you guys and your listeners to kind of, come to those conclusions on your on your own but it's it, it really is a a fascinating um sort of culture and world where this exists and it's again it i i just come back to it's all sort of it's all grown out of this very strange marriage between athletics and academics two things that just probably again if you we were like you said jason if we we're going back to scratch and waving the magic wand two things that probably never belonged together in the first place, but now have come to sort of exist as odd bedfellows. 
Uh, Jordan, so I want to wrap up our, our, our conversation um, with you uh, about your career as a college basketball writer and, and editor and, and yeah, a career that continues. Um, I want to talk about giant killers because this was the, this was the thing you really did at ESPN um, much of the time uh, while you were there. It, you looked for teams that um, might surprise folks by knocking off one of the big giants like, like a Duke. Um, tell me about that and, and what do you look for uh, it, in an upset? Because to be honest, I, I think Duke's likely to be favored in 99.9% of their games going forward, if not 100%. So this was uh, it's kind of a funny story how it started. Um, you know, I was our NBA editor at the at the magazine for before the magazine moved to Bristol um, in 2011. So, um, but I you know always sort of dabbled in college basketball too. And uh, one point, um, one of the other editors came to me and was like, "Hey, Brenner, figure out a way to you know, predict who gets upset in the tournament." And what I tell people is like, "Yeah, my response was, yeah, if I could do that, I'd be in Vegas right now, not you know." in this newsroom. Um, but you know, I'm not a, I'm, I'm numerate, but I'm not someone who can run his own like regression analysis and stuff like that. So I sort of had the right idea and didn't really necessarily know the best way to execute it, which was to sort of look for patterns among teams that ha- had already pulled up upsets. So I took this like very rudimentary math and, and, um, kind of studied, looked for some commonalities and camp was a very basic, uh, list of criteria that tended to, um, produce upsets and then lo and behold the system sort of like targeted George Mason in 2006 as a potential giant killer and that sort of final four run kind of sold the project and from there it was just about you know first was bringing on Peter Keating my buddy and our you know one of our columnists who actually can run a regression analysis and putting better math involved and now we actually use a team of professors well, I can't say we anymore because I've I left ESPN and my baby is gone but uh we had used um, a team of professors at Furman who did all this crazy advanced math that I can't even do, but I would interpret the results. And basically they showed the big lesson of giant killers that teams that play a high risk, high reward style tend to pull off more upsets. And the, the, the theory should make sense to anyone because in the tournament, it doesn't matter if you lose by a point or 30, you're not trying to impress anyone. You want to win the game where you're done. So doing things like shooting lots of threes, playing pressure defense and trying to force steals, going hard to the offensive glass and generating extra possessions. Those things are extremely important to generating upsets. And then, you know, top teams that don't do those things well, that don't guard the arc, that don't take care of their defensive glass, that don't generate extra possessions of their own, leave themselves more vulnerable because it's a, it's a pretty tried and true thing in basketball or any sport, really. The, the more, um, simply the more, the more chances you have, the more possessions, the less efficient you have to be. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, the fewer individual skirmishes, so that's why a slow pace is favored for an upset, the fewer individual skirmishes that an underdog has to win, the better their chances are as well. Um, so it's been a really fun sort of 10-year project, and we ended up getting our own TV special a couple years ago where it was me and Peter and, Seth Greenberg and Shane Battier on the set, and it really sort of took off. And it's probably the thing I'm gonna, well, that and the Bristol Cafeteria are probably the things I, uh, I miss the most about uh, being with ESPN. But uh, it's in very capable hands with Peter going forward. Well, it, it's really cool. So what you're saying is, look out for the teams that shoot a ton of threes um, and and crash the boards like crazy. Teams that it looks like, oh yeah, you might beat them by 30, or uh, it might be a close game. Yeah, turnovers, offensive rebounds, threes, those are the biggest um, areas of variance in the game. So, yeah, I mean, we, you know, there'll be plenty written on that in in the the GK blog going forward. But, if yeah, if you're starting to study teams that uh, look like they could be, you know, Cinderella's a few months from now, those are some good things to look at. And if you're looking at, if you want to find some top teams that look vulnerable, you know, like Georgetown always had a profile that that looked this way. And sure enough, they've been just, destroyed by giant killers repeatedly in the tournament. That's a good thing to look at. The interesting thing is Duke um, traditionally is projected as very historically safe, which is why the, the Mercer and uh, Lehigh games, which I know you're really happy with me to bring up, um, were, really, <laughs> were really upsets because they just didn't, you know, even our model didn't, like, rate them as remotely high chances of happening. So, um, you know, Duke tends to play a style that um, – 
particularly in shooting threes and guarding the arc and winning the turnover battle, um, tends to make them safe against underdogs. So it was uh, those games were, were very surprising, uh, not just to fans, but uh, to spreadsheets as well. Well, I'd, I'd hope that you had come here and explained to me that it wasn't possible for Duke to get upset, but I'm really disappointed in you, man. <laughs> yes, well, you've seen it, sadly, uh, <laughs> quite a bit recently. I have. So. I have. Uh, okay, so we're going to move on to uh, our uh, Player of the Week um, and this will encompass the Michigan State, Maine, and Florida games. Um, Sam, I will start with you. Uh, who is your choice for player of the week? Um, and you really only have two choices. Okay. I am going to take one of those choices, which is Emil Jefferson. Um, averaged a double-double over the last week and a half. Um, went uh, 18 for 26 in, in aggregate against uh, Michigan State and Florida, the, the two really good teams that we played. Um, and as I mentioned before, um, watching his uh, watching his season blocks record as he's about to beat it, uh, which is really exciting. So Emil Jefferson, who's done, who's done a lot of work all over the court, uh, really seems to be holding this team together and and also appears like he can handle the ball a little bit, which has been which has been a real a real boon for the Duke team on offense. And you didn't even mention um, the fact that he anchors our defense. Uh, you mentioned the blocks, well, but I mean, he, he's the defense. Nice things to say about him. Yes, yes. He is the great defensive communicator. Hey, Jordan, um, do you have someone that you think, as my phone rings, do you have someone that you think should be Duke's player of the week? Yeah, I'm going to do the co-players of the week with uh, Kennard and, and Jefferson. There's just no way I'm deciding between the two of them. They've both been so impressive um, all season, really, but especially of late. And you, you can now see the way it's kind of fitting too, because the, last night, you know, the big difference was the two man stuff. They were running the ball screen stuff and how well they seem to understand each other offensively. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not choosing between the two. Um, they're both playing at an extremely high level. You, sir, are a coward. Um, oh, the, the biggest, <laughs> but you know that. Uh, by the way, the, uh, I'm, I'm going to take Luke Kennard as my player of, of the week. Um, in the past two games, he's, 22 of 32 on field goals. That's 69% field goal shooting. Um, he is nine of 16 on three pointers. That's 56% on three pointers. And he's averaging merely 27 points per game. Um, uh, oh, and, and by the way, he's, he's grabbing rebounds and um, uh, playing pretty good defense, uh, positioning himself really nicely in defense and playing, you know, 40 minutes a game. Uh, it, to me, it's, it's not a, uh, not a, not a tough, uh, decision to pick Luke Kennard and um, Jordan. I don't know how much you listen to our podcast. Sam, who listens to every single one of them because he's with me on every single one of them, knows. Um, I think I am now. I think I've picked Luke Kennard every single player of the week, haven't I? I think Kennard. I'm now three for that. three. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, uh, Jordan, by the way, I'll tell you a prediction that I made last year, early last year. I said that Luke Kennard would be the next 2,000 point career scorer at Duke, which as you know, is not an easy thing to do. It means you've got to be a big scorer and you've got to stay there probably for four years. Um, what do you think, man? Do you think Kennard, is Kennard going to come out after this year? I, I was sure he would be a four-year player at Duke, but he's starting to look like an NBA player, isn't he? Yeah, but I don't think that's what I mean to come out. And I actually wrote the same thing in my, uh, my preseason story that he could, if he stays all four years, to score 2,000 points and uh, uh Someone else, I think when I was in Durham, I can't remember whether it was a coach or someone with you know with the staff or some had had said that same thing to me. So um, I never got a sense that he was you know a potential you know draft guy this year. But I guess if he keeps playing like this, it's something you have to think about. Again, I haven't spoken to any pro people about him yet, but I'm now now I'm curious to make some phone calls later. Yeah, hey, make sure you let me know. Let me know how that goes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, I'll, the, uh, I'll just conference you in. They, thank you. That'd be perfect. Uh, by the way, to me, the, the sort of funny thing about Jefferson and Kennard playing as well as they have lately and playing as well as they have thus far this season, um, you know, before the injuries, before the season started, when you sort of talked about who are the guys who are going to play a lot for Duke and things like that, and you looked at, oh, here are the top six, top seven, maybe even top eight guys, um, uh, Kennard and Jefferson would have been at the sort of bottom of that list. Um, 
and and yet they have elevated themselves to the top of it thus far, which is, uh, uh, you know, just goes to show you can never tell what's going to happen. Uh, although we're obviously we're, we're waiting. We still haven't seen a single second of Harry Giles and, and Jason Tatum just showed up for the first time last night. And, and oh my God, uh, <laughs> he looked unstoppable at times. Uh, anyway, uh, okay, so we will move on to the very end to our parting shots. Um, Sam, I will start with you. Uh, give us your parting shot as we wrap things up here. Sure. I uh, went to a Duke alumni holiday party the other night at the Colorado Governor's Mansion, which was really lovely. And I just wanted to say that I had a great time. I met uh, one podcast listener um, and talked to a few other folks who I know um, through the whole Duke basketball community. Um, so it was just a, a really, really lovely time. Um, and uh, so shout out to, I don't think anybody who put on the event listens to this show, but if they do, shout out to y'all um, for doing a great job. Um, Jordan, do you have a parting shot or you, you said you weren't sure you weren't even sure what the heck parting shot meant. Uh, my parting shot is just, uh, I am so thrilled that I could join you, Jason, on this podcast and, you know, get up nice and early and get to work a little bit late just to spend this time with you. So, so thank you for the, the opportunity and that I do hope you'll have me back sometime. Uh, we would love to. You've provided some excellent insight, sir. Thank you very much for that. You are so kind. Usually when you and I talk, it's over Google Chat. Uh, so this, this, this was a, 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 a nice change. My parting shot is a tip of the cap to Clay Thompson of the Golden State Warriors. Um, uh, he did something truly, truly remarkable. Um, he scored 60 points in 29 minutes the other day. Um, he is the first player in NBA history to get 60 plus points and play less than 30 minutes of a basketball game. But there were a couple other stats I want to just point out. You, again, I've said this before. You guys know me. I'm a stat head. I love stats. Um, Clay Thompson uh, dribbled the ball. <clears throat> Clay Thompson dribbled the ball a total of 11 times, 11 dribbles to get his 21 field goals. He also had the ball in his hands a total of 88.4 seconds in the entire game. Some guy at sports view or something like that came up with that. He had the ball for 88 seconds in the game and he scored 60 points. Um, Clay Thompson is the ultimate catch and shoot ball player in the NBA. And I just thought those stats were unbelievable. The fact that he scored 60 points on 11 dribbles and 88 seconds. It's crazy. That's yeah, absolutely that's, insane. In, in, totally nuts. Yeah. So uh, my parting shot is a tip of the cap to Clay Thompson and to the Golden State Warriors um, for uh, uh, they're 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 playing pretty good basketball right now. Um, so that's all we got for you this time on the DBR podcast. Uh, again, a big thanks to Jordan Brenner of uh, of Bleacher Report, formerly of ESPN the magazine, for joining us. Um, my buddy Sam Klein out there in Denver, Colorado, who got up really nice and early to to uh, join us on this podcast. Duke has UNLV coming up this weekend. I don't think we'll do another podcast after UNLV. We'll probably wait a little bit. The team's about to go on a bit of an exam and a Christmas break, and we'll, we'll find time in there someplace to, to, to get back to you guys, to, to you folks, all eight of you who are listening out there, and, uh, and have another podcast. Um, but, uh, but for Sam and Jordan, I am Jason Evans. Thanks a lot for joining us, folks. And Duke Band, it's your turn. Take us home.